Welcome to another episode of the Teacher and the Tree Man. Today you're going to get book one, chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16. Uh, real quick, uh, I re-recorded chapter 13, and chapter 14 I went back and just did some edits on. So if you hear any strangeness to the sound quality on chapter 14, as far as it sounding different, that's why. But I think I did a pretty good job, and... Uh, original recordings that I had on the BNP Round podcast had some missing words. I don't know what happened, so I went and redid those. Okay, that's all. Let's get on with the show and enjoy these chapters. Chapter 13, Public Setbacks, Private Hopes. Class was about to start, but no one was in the mood to leave the TV room. Another airliner, apparently also hijacked, had crashed into a field in Pennsylvania. But more disturbing was the news that the World Trade Center South Tower had collapsed, followed about half an hour later by the collapse of the North Tower. The destruction was on an epic scale, and the normally sensationalistic media had no words large enough to describe what they were witnessing. Despite the intensity of the morning, or perhaps because of it, Lucas felt rather detached, and noticed his reaction was quite different from the shocked state of most of the staff. They were trying to discuss the implications, speculating about who was behind it, about where and when the next attacks would happen, and about whether or not to cancel school for the day. Finally, Weinberg decided that it was best to go ahead with school, because in their small corner of the world, there was no reason to think they would be attacked. I just don't know if I can handle teaching this morning, Wendy said, and Lucas noticed that her makeup was a total mess now. She had been gone for 15 minutes, and Lucas figured she'd been crying somewhere. Why was she taking this so hard? This is unbelievable, Rialto said. Who the fuck would do something like this to us? What did we do? The question set off several answers in Lucas's mind, but he was well aware of the dangers of speaking too openly about his politics in the workplace. Still, he was feeling confident and empowered due to the intersection decision, so he threw caution to the wind and said, what did we do? Are you kidding? The other conversation stopped. No, I'm not kidding, Rialto said. Are you trying to say we deserve this? Of course not, Lucas said, knowing he should walk carefully over these eggshells, but struggling due to a sudden rise in overwhelming emotions. Nobody deserves this. I'm just as shocked as the rest of you. I'm just not that surprised. How can you say that? Wendy demanded. How can this seem expected? Lucas was about to delve into a diatribe about American foreign policy since World War II, how, in the name of freedom for so-called free markets, the American military machine had dipped its feet into the internal affairs of just about every country on the planet, when Danielson said, I don't think that's what Paul is saying. Is it, Paul? No, no, Lucas said. I'm sorry. I'm not sure what I'm saying. I'm emotional, just like all of you. All I meant is that if you live in a country that has the world's largest military, and that military has been involved in various conflicts around the world, it's pretty obvious that some country or terrorist group is going to strike back at some time, right? No one said anything. Lucas wondered what he'd said wrong. He knew his fellow teachers were generally liberals like himself, and that they'd probably been exposed to some of the same information about U.S. foreign policy he'd been exposed to in college. Uh, Paul, perhaps this isn't the best time to be discussing our wrongdoings, Danielson said, putting a comforting hand on Lucas's shoulder. Then when is, Lucas said. Are we going to just act like this attack occurred in a vacuum, and that we've done nothing that would cause people out there to hate us? Just strike back without thinking about why we were struck? I can't believe what I'm hearing, Rialto said. Thousands of people are probably dead, and who knows what's going to happen next. And you want to delve into a discussion about the wrongs of U.S. foreign policy, as though somehow we brought this upon ourselves? Whatever, Willie, Lucas said. All I'm saying is that if humanity is ever to learn from such horrible acts, we need to examine why these things happen before we react. You can't know the why unless you are willing to look at all perspectives and viewpoints, including ones that may cast one's actions in a critical light. Go ahead and do that from your ivory tower, Rialto said. In the meantime, I just hope President Bush is mobilizing a retaliation plan so we get whoever did this to us. Lucas wanted to say something more, but Danielson interceded, saying, It's time for class, everybody. 
I think it's best if we try to go about our business like it's a normal day. We have to remember that even though we are upset, we are adults, so we have acquired defenses against this sort of thing. Our kids are more open and thus more susceptible to the negativity of this deal. Lucas wanted to argue with that too, saying that he thought this would be a good day to hold a school-wide assembly and let everybody just rant out whatever they were feeling. Instead, he decided that because he respected Danielson so much, it was better to follow his advice. After all, Lucas was well aware that his emotions were getting the better of him, and he'd already said things that had cast him in a bad light with his co-workers. But he wasn't sure how much he cared. He felt that part of the reason this attack had happened was because Americans were so busy ignoring what their government was doing around the world in their name. Throughout the 1990s, horrible things were being done by the U.S. military and economic policies, yet the news of the day had focused on asinine, unimportant topics like the O.J. Simpson murder trial or whether or not the president had received a blowjob from an intern. This shallow, head-in-the-sand quality of American journalism had been enough to make Lucas give up the field and go into teaching, where he hoped he could meld young minds into more thoughtful adults than those who were currently running the country and the media. With those thoughts dancing through his mind, Lucas went to class and vowed to get through the day without stirring up any more trouble. The rest of the day did turn out to be trouble-free, because he spent it in his classroom with the idea that he could tune out the horrible news and keep away from the teachers who might want to talk about it. When school finally finished, he went to the staff room and remembered that he'd wanted to call the city councilman who'd called that morning. I need you to help me out with one other thing, Lucas, feeling very confident now that the intersection was going to be fixed, said to city councilman Robert Gordon Phillips. It's not a big favor. I just want to know if you can do anything to stop the new mall they're talking about. Well, Phillips said, I'm afraid it's beyond my realm of influence. Wait, Lucas said, I thought you were the man who could make things happen. I can, so? That mall is outside city limits, so we have no control over it. It's up to the county, Phillips said. The county? Yeah, Phillips said, though the county council gave it the go-ahead a while back. Can't say I blame him. That mall is going to bring in a lot of revenue into this area. Wait, Lucas said, are you saying you support this mall? Of course, why wouldn't I? Phillips said. As I said, it will be an economic boon to... Enough already, Lucas said. You've lost my support. He hung up violently. How goddamn frustrating. Can't believe that guy trying to say the money was worth it. Worth what? How can he even quantify the value of a forest, a creek, a canyon? Doesn't he ever go out to places like Last Rush? Considering his attitude, the answer was probably not. Lucas left the phone room and got ready to make the trek home. As he was gathering his papers in his classroom, he looked at the desk where Chris Lee normally sat. Today, for the first time that year, he'd been absent. Lucas missed Lee's presence in class. He had a way of keeping things loose yet on topic, and had asked around about his whereabouts. Shelley Jacobson, one of Lee's better friends, Chris's girlfriend, other students sometimes called her, had told Lucas that Lee had laryngitis which Lucas found questionable. Was laryngitis really that capable of spreading, or just a convenient excuse? And all of a sudden, it dawned on Lucas. Tomorrow morning, when he called in sick, he knew exactly what he would say. Yeah, Lucas rasped. Laryngitis. Drink lots of water and get some rest, Weinberg said. I want to contain this before it turns into a goddamned epidemic. So don't even think about coming back if you're still contagious. How do I know when that is? How the hell should I know? I'm a principal, not a doctor. Right, Lucas said, doing his best to keep the rasp in his voice so the act wouldn't fall apart right at the end. The principal said goodbye rather abruptly, which was fine by Lucas, because he was eager to get on with breakfast so he could be ready when Larry arrived at 7 a.m. Terry was gone already and had taken Scarlet with her, so Lucas was alone with his thoughts. Mostly, he was worried about whether he should tell Sylvanus about the plans for the outlet mall. It was certainly news he had to reveal to Sylvanus, but was the morning of their grand experiment really the best time to do it? In college, Lucas had read many of the psychedelic literature classics, Timothy Leary's books, the works of Carlos Castaneda, and Terence McKenna, Ramdas's Be Here Now, Aldous Huxley's The Doors of Perception, and in all of them, one of the most common themes stressed was the Voyager's mindset and setting. 
Lucas knew already that Sylvanus' setting was perfect. It was hard to beat the great outdoors for a mushroom journey, especially somewhere as serene as the forest. It was the mindset that was more concerning. For one, Sylvanus was a first-time tripper, so his reaction was unpredictable. Yet more than that, the tree man had likely never heard about what a psychedelic trip entailed. In some ways, Lucas felt this was a good thing, because in America 2001, the majority of information people had about taking psychedelics was tinged with fear. A lot of it was about how one could lose one's mind, sometimes permanently. And the worst thing you could tell someone before tripping for the first time was something like that, because it could become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Before the 1960s LSD explosion, the information in the mainstream about psychedelics was glowingly positive, with people like actor Cary Grant claiming LSD had given him a new lease on life and his spirituality. So Lucas decided he'd tell Sylvanus that the experience was going to change his consciousness in a positive way, and that if things got frightening, to trust himself, take some deep breaths, and remember that it would pass. Lucas knew he was rolling the dice here, but he had to gamble, especially now that the forest was in danger of being destroyed. Despite these concerns, Lucas had confidence that Sylvanus was going to pass the mushroom test with flying colors. Many of the more serious freakouts and problems that result from the use of psychedelic drugs are in people who are mentally unstable. Sylvanus seemed like a strong personality with a good head on his, um, tree. The other problems that invariably came from psychedelic drug use were people taking too much or mixing them with other chemicals. Lucas wasn't going to give the tree man too many mushrooms, maybe two grams worth, because of his fears about how the man would react, and he'd only be giving him mushrooms, nothing more. In the end, Lucas knew that even if Sylvanus wasn't real warm on the idea of eating gross-tasting mushrooms, he'd do it for two reasons. First, he seemed to trust Lucas, but more importantly, he was desperate. If all worked according to plan, the mushrooms would help Sylvanus rediscover unused parts of his body, just as he and Larry had felt that night in college, and he'd be able to start working at breaking out of the tree. As Lucas began to prepare breakfast, he felt good about this decision and tried to put the issue to rest in his rattling mind. Yet his mind instantly regurgitated the original question to him. Should he tell Sylvanus about the mall or not? He wrestled with this large question as he whistled his own tune and scrambled up some eggs. When he was done scrambling them into a yellow perfection, he made his decision. Tell him later. Let the experiment go on as planned, and hopefully it would actually work and somehow Sylvanus would be freed from the tree. Then, whether or not the forest was chopped down wouldn't be a life-threatening situation for Sylvanus. Lucas smiled at the genius of his decision, read over the morning newspaper, and ate his eggs as he waited for Larry to arrive. The front section was almost completely devoted to the horrors of the terrorist attacks. Lucas started to read the main article, but found himself distracted by the upcoming day and didn't really learn much. He did notice that the article gave no historical context about how in the 1980s the CIA had been funding and training the very terrorists who were suspected of carrying out the attacks. He didn't expect it, but he was disappointed nonetheless. It worried him. The way he figured it, the less the mainstream media gave historical context to the attacks, including how they were considered retaliation by the attackers, the more outraged the American public were going to be, asking the question that was already being repeated like a mantra. Why did this happen to us? If key aspects of the answer to that question were not reported, the conclusions the American people were going to have were going to be incomplete and, at worst, catastrophic. He'd already heard the president say in a speech from the Oval Office last night that the terrorists targeted the U.S., because it was the brightest beacon for freedom and opportunity in the world. What worried Lucas was if the American people bought into this explanation, they were going to demand revenge that was only going to cause the fighting to intensify. Lucas had always had trouble understanding why people didn't realize that when you are fighting with someone, or some country, if you keep fighting, the other party is likely to continue fighting back. If you truly want an end to the conflict, you always have a choice to quit the fighting and attempt to resolve it in some other way that doesn't involve violence. The hard part, of course, was once fights or wars began, their emotional nature made it difficult for either side to stop. And that's not even considering the strange psychology that suggested that to stop fighting is to be a coward. There were no other stories in the rest of the newspaper that demanded his attention. 
Why would he care about the financial plight of the Tacoma women's soccer team? He didn't even know there was a team, and then realized that was why they were in a financial plight. Whatever. He also didn't see the reason he needed to know about plucking unseemly hairs out of various orifices. After all, he didn't have any of those hairs. Yet. The cuckoo clock in his living room hooted at the world seven times. There was no knock on his door. No Larry. 701 passed and so did 702. At 710, Lucas started to be concerned, and at 720 he was downright pissed. Why couldn't Larry ever be on time? Lucas waited, nervously glancing through the classifieds, and at 7.30 he could have sworn the doorbell rang, but it was only a trick of his imagination. Son of a bitch, he thought, and decided to forget about the likelihood of the often flaky Larry Sherry arriving so early in the morning. After all, he'd always been a late sleeper. Plus, Lucas suddenly realized, he'd made the comment about being here when he was pretty drunk, thus had likely forgotten he'd made it. So he gathered up his gear, a thermos full of hot coffee with a screw-on lid that turned into a cup, a blanket, a notebook, a book of Wallace Stegner essays and the mushrooms, and threw them into his backpack. Then he grabbed a fold-out camping chair and tucked it under his arm. He was warmly dressed, a green wool sweater, fuzzy gray cap, tan worn corduroy pants and hiking boots, yet as he stepped outside a sudden thought froze him in his tracks. What happens if he gets out of the tree? What then? Shit, why did I have to think of that now? Okay, well, what to do? Well, hell, I don't know. I'm just going to have to improvise. Go on faith. Assume that if, and it's a big if, he does break out, something will come to me then. Okay, that's it. God, this is crazy. Chapter 14, The Escape Hatch When Lucas reached the grove, Sylvanus was still in knot, most likely in a deep sleep. Remembering that he had rudely woken him the other morning, Lucas decided to wait for Sylvanus to wake up. He unfolded his camping chair and sat down. He was content to wait. It was rare that he was in the forest this early, and as he settled in, relaxing to a near sleep, its quiet and chill suddenly took on a stark and strangely eerie feeling. Usually, the towering trees protected him. This morning, they felt like a suffocating blanket. And the silence! How sacred it often was, but how sinister now, as though its silky fingers could slink into every pore of Lucas's body and squeeze, squeeze, squeeze. A truck grunted from the highway two miles away, and it rumbled through Lucas's disturbed mind like a boisterous burp. Normally, the sound would have sent Lucas into a frenzy of profanities, but here it served as a compassionate slap in his face, awakening him out of his funk and back into his normal, grand appreciation for the forest. It was alive, slumbering true, but alive, and somehow, maybe because it lacked self-consciousness, it felt totally pure. Lucas sucked in this realization with a satisfied breath and smile. A small sliver of sunlight caressed a log across the grove, and a woodpecker searched a snag for breakfast. Thuck, thuck, thuck. Lucas noticed about halfway up a snag, a section of bark had been shaved off in short vertical stripes. What had happened here? A flying beaver, perhaps? Yes, the forest was magically alive, and as the sun began to light up the morning sky and give the forest a stunning golden hue, Lucas gratefully took it in, sipping on his coffee, and every once in a while checking on Sylvanus. A long horn, almost like a foghorn, sounded from down the highway and Lucas jumped. What was that? He realized it was probably a horn signaling the men to start work down at the Newson Rock Quarry. Work, Lucas thought and smiled. Well, he felt a bit guilty about leaving his kids with the substitute when he wasn't sick, the guilt was certainly not overwhelming. Nothing a sip of warm coffee couldn't handle. Just then, Lucas had a brainstorm. Maybe he'd eat a mushroom stem, just to lighten up the day. Hell, if all he was going to do was sit in the woods watching a man's head in the tree all day, he couldn't see why not. He reached for the bag of mushrooms in the backpack. Good morning, Paul, Sylvanus said. Lucas jumped and caught Sylvanus looking down at him with a bemused smirk on his face. Something on your mind? the man in the tree asked. No, uh, nothing, no, Lucas said, discarding his plan for now. So, you ready to see if we can get you out of this godforsaken tree? Sylvanus flinched. 
It's not a bad tree, Paul. I just want to be free, that's all. I didn't mean anything by it, Lucas said and scratched the back of his neck. Let me tell you the plan. It's not... Paul, Sylvanus said. Slow down. There's something I want to ask you. What is it? What happens to me if I get out? Lucas stopped scratching his neck and raised his head to look at Sylvanus. What could he say? He had no idea. He supposed he could find a place for him to stay for a few days. Hell, even a hotel would do. But then what? How was he to explain to Sylvanus that in the town of Lincolnton, in the state of Washington, in the country called America, on the planet Earth in the year 2001, people didn't commonly materialize out of a tree? It was unprecedented, and Lucas had no more of an answer now than he'd had earlier that morning. So he fidgeted and said, Don't worry, I'll take care of you. Sylvanus's black eyes seemed to pierce Lucas's soul, and for a moment Lucas thought Sylvanus was seen through his casual dismissal. But he smiled, let out a large breath of frosty air, and said, Okay, then. How are we going to do this? I'll show you, Lucas said, bending to dig the mushrooms out of the backpack. He grabbed them, but before pulling them out, he said, Now you have to keep an open mind about this, Sylvanus, okay? Okay, the tree man said. Lucas pulled out the bag and said, These little buttes are going to be your ticket out of that tree. Sylvanus looked at Lucas, a blank expression on his face, and said, What are they? Psilocybin cubensis, Lucas said. Or in layman's terms, magic mushrooms. Magic mushrooms? Sylvanus laughed. What good will those do me, besides some breakfast? Oh no, Lucas said and laughed. These aren't really for eating. They taste like shit, literally. So why am I going to eat them? Medicine, Lucas said. Medicine? That's what I said. You didn't leave me many options since I can't chop you down. Sylvanus laughed. Oh, I'm sure there were other options. You just picked this one. Look, I don't even have to help, Lucas said. He wanted to stuff the mushrooms back in the backpack and leave, but Sylvanus said, You're right. I'm sorry. I just don't understand how they are going to work. Well, Lucas said, they are magic. You do believe in magic, don't you? Sylvanus sighed. I guess I'm going to have to. An hour later, and Sylvanus wasn't so sure he could no longer believe in magic. In fact, he wasn't so sure what, if anything, he could believe in. It had been a rough hour, with him practically vomiting out the vile things. It tasted like moldy cardboard and manure. He had wanted to spit them out at Lucas, but the man kept yelling words of encouragement up at him from his perch on his lawn chair, where he was handing them over to Sylvanus one by one. So Sylvanus chewed and swallowed the awful-tasting monstrosities, and by the time he was done, ten minutes had elapsed. For the next twenty minutes or so, he and Lucas had talked about Terry, and Lucas had told Sylvanus that he'd told her Sylvanus wasn't real. Sylvanus wasn't so sure that this was the right thing to do, but he had to acknowledge he really had no clue how people outside the forest were supposed to relate to each other. Then, Sylvanus had felt his stomach attempt to climb up his throat, and he instantly had wondered if Lucas had poisoned him. A mercy kill. His stomach cast a slight taste of mushroom bile into the back of his throat. He so badly wanted to puke, but just then he felt his whole inner body go dead cold. His body! From his toes to the top of his skull, a chill had awakened his inner body with a start. It was still there! And just as quickly as the chill came, it left and was replaced with a flash that would have caused his face to turn red had he not had the dark bark of a tree for skin. The warmth tingled through his skin, and he relaxed, enjoying this feeling, just knowing that he still had a body that was not this tree. He gave it a wiggle. Nothing really happened. He tried again. Still nothing. Start slow, he heard a voice from somewhere inside of him say. Okay, he thought, wiggling his toe. There. It wasn't much, but he'd felt it moving, though it seemed like a 200-ton weight was holding it down. He wanted to tell Lucas, but Lucas had disappeared, perhaps taking a bathroom break. Sylvanus smiled and closed his eyes. Oh my, what a scene! He was in a field surrounded by sparkling green and gold cornstalks, stretching toward a deep, brilliant blue sky. A sky so full that he felt he could drink it down, and it would fill his soul with the purest water imaginable. The stalks stirred in the breeze, singing softly, and the breeze kissed his face.
which for some reason felt like it was covered in several days of stubble. The earth below him smelled like the forest often smelled after a rain, fresh and alive. The field was magic. Yet where was this vision coming from? It was so clear. There was simply no way it could have been invented by his imagination. It had to be coming from somewhere. Your past, he heard the voice say again. Just then, he heard something panting, running quickly toward him. <laughs> and he felt scared, as though somehow the vision was so intense that he could be harmed in that magic field. After all, the breeze had caused him pleasure, so why rule out pain? Out of the corner of his eye, he saw a shimmering golden form leaping toward him, hurtling through the air right at his face, and he turned just in time to catch a golden retriever. The dog's momentum knocked him to the ground and in slow motion its tongue began to lick Sylvanus's face, and Sylvanus laughed into the warm breeze as he rolled with Rex. How did I know its name? There you are! A frail red-headed girl in overalls appeared out of the stalks, and tears began to roll down Sylvanus's face. Doris! he yelled and reached out to hug her, but then he blinked. God damn it, I blinked! And momentarily saw a golden green forest, pulsating with more light than he thought possible. But closed his eyes as quickly as he could to feel Doris's warmth. But he was alone, standing on hard, shining linoleum under an impressive skylight, and a fountain flowed in front of him. Water cascaded over a miniature waterfall, tumbling into a pool with a sparkling golden floor. The way the water fell entranced him, always moving, fluid, never-ending, fascinating. But there was something more. Something about this spot he stood on. Something not right, no matter how intoxicating the fountain was. He turned to speak to a young mother who was watching her acute son toss a coin into the fountain, but his voice stuck. The words would not form. It was as if his lips had been glued to the top of his mouth. He tried to speak. Nothing. Damn it! Nothing. Sylvanus! Sylvanus! Lucas's voice shattered the image, and he opened his eyes. The forest was glowing, as though lit up by its usually slumbering inner spirit. It was truly alive. If others could see it as he was seeing it, that fact could not be debated. It seemed to pulsate as though breathing, endlessly, just like the water cascading down the fountain. He wanted to clap his hands in appreciation, and as he thought this, he could have sworn he felt his arm budge, just the slightest bit. Are you okay? Lucas asked him from what sounded like down a long tunnel, but was really right below him. Yes, Sylvanus heard himself say, but again his voice sounded far away. Yes, I'm more than okay. I can feel my body. Later, after Sylvanus had kept his eyes open just appreciating the natural beauty of the forest, how green it was, he grew tired and closed his eyes, and found himself in the forest. Lucas, however, was not there, yet he was not alone, or was he? He didn't see anybody or any animals, but something or some things were there. He sensed them. Who or what are you? Across his vision, too fast for him to really see it, something like a ghost flew by, and then seemed to settle in the tree across from him. Can you speak? Something like leaves blew in the wind and then more spirits whooshed through the grove before settling into the trees that surrounded him. Suddenly, he remembered. He'd met them before in his dreams. Then, he heard a raspy sound, like dried leaves crunching under a foot, turn itself into a voice in his head. We can't speak, though it's not really speaking, is it? He didn't know how to answer, so he didn't. We are not physical. At least in the way you think of the word, the voice said in his head. Then how are you speaking to me now? It's easier for you to hear us when you meet us halfway between our worlds, the voice said. Is that what we are doing? Yes. Sylvanus didn't entirely understand. Not at first. Then he had it. The mushrooms just as they seemed to offer him a new way to perceive the forest, they also seemed to give him the ability to perceive these creatures, whatever they were. Are you spirits? Yes, something like that, the voice said. We have been called many things. Fairies, 
sprites, spirits, ghosts. But what we are is not as important as what we do. And that is? We are guardians, the voice said, protectors of the forest. But if people can't regularly see or hear you, how can you do that? No answer. Instead, the wind picked up, the trees shook, and pine needles began to rain down from the treetops. Sylvanus! Sylvanus! came Lucas's voice. The tree man opened his eyes and saw his friend panicking, trying to find cover under his lawn chair, but having no luck as pine needles began to cover his crouching body. He shielded his head with his arms, and then it stopped. Lucas slowly peered up from under his arms. What the heck was that? Sylvanus never answered Lucas's question, because he couldn't immediately find the words. Something had rendered him speechless. Later, after Lucas had left, though, he found an answer. It was a warning. The rest of the day was uneventful, with Lucas occasionally reading his book, but mostly just savoring the quiet of the forest. It was such a drastic difference from the classroom environment. Much as he loved his kids, sometimes he would have given up a week's pay just for them to be silent. Silence was an increasingly rare commodity in today's noise-polluted society. How often do we get the chance just to listen to nothing? Sylvanus had been unusually quiet even when he came gliding back into a regular consciousness. He'd told Lucas that he wasn't sure what to make of the experience, except that feeling his body had given him hope. Next time, they would use a larger dose. Sylvanus had made this decision with little hesitation. Lucas could tell he was getting desperate to get out of the tree. Rather than talk to Lucas about his thoughts, Sylvanus had told Lucas he needed some time alone to think. That was fine by Lucas, who wanted to get going so he could beat Terry home. He knew if he didn't, she would question why he had a lawn chair, a thermos, and a backpack full of stuff if he'd only been out in the woods for an hour after school. He didn't want to have to lie to her about his day, so he happily left Sylvanus to his thinking. He walked quickly out of the canyon, feeling pretty darn good about the day's events. Even if the forest was lost in court, the mushrooms had given him hope. He'd go down fighting it, but he knew he could lose the forest. That was horrible to think about, so he focused his thoughts on saving Sylvanus. Yet there were other reasons for his sudden elation. The intersection was going to be fixed. He hadn't yet told Terry, and he knew she'd reward him in some carnal fashion for his action. Of course, he was also pleased that he and Terry had made up, even if it was under false pretenses. He didn't like to lie to her, but the longer he was married, the more he learned to pick his battles wisely and the more he felt that white lies here and there served like a sort of glue, binding the marriage together. Honesty was essential, but white lies were necessary too, weren't they? And then there was Rialto. Lucas never thought he'd think this, but Rialto actually had a few surprises in him. True, he grew up a surfer, so it's not that strange that he cared about the environment. He told Lucas about surfing under the sun on warm summer days, shooting tubes of tumbling water with reckless abandon, and the killer thrill of coming out standing on the other side. There will never be days like those again, Rialto had told Lucas. Not for me. He clearly loved the beach. But the forest? Why? Lucas didn't trust him. Something had to be up his sleeve. It was Rialto, after all. Lucas thought about these things as he showered and he reflected about the utter strangeness of his life. Was it truly like this for everyone? Well, yes and no. Yes, he reasoned. Most people have crazy people in their lives because most people are crazy. But not so crazy that they wind up meeting a man stuck in the side of a tree. In a strange way, this fact comforted him. This was a story that was truly unique. He didn't expect anyone else to be in this predicament. Sylvanus had unwittingly given Lucas's life a reason, a way to make it stand out from the pack. Here, with Sylvanus, he was actually making a difference, and it was a difference no one else had ever made. He may not be the first person to save some trees, but he sure as hell was going to be the first person to save a man who was stuck in a tree. Hell, this might even be his ticket to glory, his pre-assigned 15 minutes of fame, those minutes granted to all modern American citizens, or so the myth goes. 
He can see the Tacoma Post headline now, School Teacher Saves Tree and Friend, and a photo of him standing next to a freed Sylvanus. The Tacoma Post? No way, this story was so much bigger than that. It was huge, and likely to bring him fame and a renewed hold on life. How little did he know. Chapter 15. Meetings of Minds Rainierview Principal Max Weinberg sat behind the oval table in the teacher's meeting room and said, Okay, thank you all for coming. We'll hear from Mr. Bob Schmidt first. Lucas, Danielson, and Wendy sat together and looked at a giant of a man in a gray business suit and with politician-perfect comb-brown hair sitting at the end of the table. Thank you, Principal Weinberg, he said. Lucas sat on the edge of his seat, intent on finding holes in Schmidt's thinking. He was next, and he wanted to be loaded with ammunition that could blast through Schmidt's puny arguments. As you know, our son Bob Jr. was given a drug by one of Rainierview's students, Schmidt said. We are practicing Mormons, and drug use is strictly forbidden. Drug use is a sin. Our son was tempted by Chris Lee to act sinfully. There is no excuse for this kind of behavior, and, as you know, the law backs me on this. According to the school's own codes, students are not allowed to carry drugs. They are to turn them into the nurse's office. Chris Lee clearly violated this rule. That's the first strike against him. But even worse, he then spat in the face of school policy by offering those drugs on the playground. As a result, our son has committed a sin. I pray that you are people of good conscience with respect for the law, for it is your duty to right this wrong. To our Heavenly Father, we ask for forgiveness. To the school, we ask for justice. Thank you. Damn, Lucas thought. He wasn't as much of a raving extremist as I thought he'd be. Paul Lucas, Weinberg called. Lucas stood. Thank you for allowing me to speak on Chris Lee's behalf, he said, stopping to glance around the room since his parents couldn't be here for him. Lucas paused and looked over at Danielson, who seemed displeased. What had he said? Never mind, time to put it all out there. Chris Lee is a victim of an irrational law, which ties reason in knots and leaves us worse off than before we had the law. What did Chris Lee do wrong? He was reacting out of compassion for Bob Schmidt, merely trying to help him overcome a nasty headache. And so we then call him a drug pusher, as though he were passing out crack? He gave Schmidt an over-the-counter pill, which is commonly accepted in our culture, and which no one would suggest is a drug of abuse. There are clear distinctions between various medications and drugs of abuse, and drug laws recognize this. Why should our schools ignore such distinctions? Just because of a poorly crafted law by Washington bureaucrats? Ultimately, Chris Lee is a great student, always works hard, is well-liked by his peers, was never in trouble before, and to punish him for exercising compassion, something the world needs more of, judging by the horrific events of this week, well, to do that is sheer folly. Lucas thought about stopping here, but the energy of public speaking had infected him, and he bowled forward, unable to resist responding to Mr. Schmidt's religious impulses. Now, there is one more thing I wish to address, and that is this notion of Lee's actions being a sin. That is completely ludicrous, Lucas said, and glanced over at Schmidt Sr., who was glaring back at him. Jesus preached about compassion. In fact, it was one of his main teachings. But that's beside the point. What I'm getting at here is that we have to look at intent and not be blinded by unbending rules. Chris Lee intended to help a classmate. That is certainly not the behavior of a sinner, and it certainly doesn't warrant him being thrown out. If anything, the kid deserves an award. Schmidt's glare was a spotlight of disgust. Lucas wanted to smile at the man, to break through his veneer, but doubted it would do much good. "'Your time is up, Mr. Lucas,' said Weinberg in an irritated tone. "'Thank you.' Lucas smiled at Weinberg, who didn't smile back, and at Schmidt, who only intensified his glare, and said, "'Thank you.' He looked at Danielson, who did not make eye contact with him, and Wendy, who did, but he wished she hadn't. She looked like she wanted to drill two holes into his soul with those pretty eyes of hers. Meanwhile, the room was uncomfortably silent, and it disturbed Lucas. It felt like the sort of silence that falls after someone has committed a cultural no-no. 
Had it been his attack of Schmidt's so-called religious beliefs? Probably. But he couldn't just let it go. Not when it had seemed so blatantly inaccurate. Lucas sat through Wendy's speech and realized that he'd made a strategic error by bringing up religion. His more on-point defensively would be forgotten. Still, he didn't regret it because speaking the truth was important to him. He only hoped that by doing so, the next time someone brought it up, it would be less of a taboo. History worked that way, Lucas felt. As taboo topics became more acceptable, denial was slowly but surely defeated. It was Danielson's turn to speak. He began, Much of what I want to say Mr. Lucas has covered, so I'll keep it as short as I can. Yes, Chris Lee broke school policy. Yes, he should be punished. Lucas couldn't believe this. What the hell is he doing? He knows he is supposed to turn all medication into the nurse. And he should have. Yet, I want the board to think about this. I suggest that what he did was much like if an adult were to get a speeding ticket because they were hurrying a sick child to a doctor. If a policeman stops the speeder, he may issue a ticket, but he won't arrest the person and take them to jail. Well, by suspending Mr. Lee, that is what we'd be doing. I suggest we give him something more like a ticket, such as a drug awareness course and after-school detention for a few days, where he will write a paper reflecting on the mistake he made. Thank you. Lucas watched Schmidt glaring at Danielson as the veteran teacher finished. Schmidt's eyes, a lust for vengeance, a desire to see his viewpoint prevail and justice served. Lucas couldn't stand the man. How he tried to impose his viewpoint on everyone, how he equated an over-the-counter painkiller that was as common in American society as minivans with truly dangerous drugs like crack or heroin, how he couldn't draw these obvious distinctions. He made Lucas sick. But what made Lucas even sicker was the fact that no matter how eloquent or persuasive the words they had used to defend Chris Lee were, the irrational Schmidt was going to see his version of justice prevail. Lucas sat in his car at the corner of Maine and Rainier, doing his best to ignore the man with a placard and bullhorn who was preaching about the end of the world just on the other side of his window. Often, Lucas lamented how car culture kept everybody separate in one's own little world, thus increasing a sense of alienation. However, there were times like this when he was grateful for his private realm. The man's placard read, They are coming! Prepare! and he was ranting about a variety of topics, from UFOs to conspiracies involving oil tycoons, rich Arabs, and elitist Jews controlling the media. Lucas always pitied people like this, not because of their viewpoints, but because their viewpoints had consumed their ability to carry a normal conversation. He had to assume they were some of the most alienated people out there. The light turned green. Lucas left the man, silently wishing him well. He pulled into a Safeway grocery store to pick up a few things for dinner that night. He'd often shopped there, so he figured his was a familiar face to the staff. Still, that didn't fully explain what happened when Lucas was in the checkout line. Before the cashier started to go through the usual cashier routine, she stopped, looked Lucas deeply in the eyes, and asked, Are you alright? This was not the normal transactional conversation tone, but something entirely different. She sounded like she actually cared. Instead of responding with an automatic, I'm fine, thanks, Lucas considered his answer and finally said, I've been better. My life's pretty crazy right now. Of course it is, said the cashier. Everyone's taking all this really hard. Lucas didn't have to think long what this was. She was obviously referring to the 9-11 attacks, but that hadn't been what he'd meant. Still, he decided not to trouble her with even more of the world's problems, problems like supposedly religious people lacking compassion, or wealthy companies destroying beautiful landscapes so they could build another soulless shopping mall. No, people had enough on their plates right now without him adding to it, so he simply said, Well, you take care of yourself, okay? The cashier smiled and said she would. As he left the grocery store, Lucas thought about how perhaps 9-11 was going to be something of a terrible catalyst to bring people together, to open people's hearts to each other. Could that positive, unforeseen consequence be a small silver lining? If so, how long would it last? Would people continue to stay in a place of caring for each other? Or would they soon go back to their automatic, autonomous lifestyles, 
where daily interactions were distant and few really cared about how small talk questions were asked and answered. That night, during the 20 chatty minutes before the meeting of activists became serious, Lucas asked Danielson in private, Why did you argue that Chris Lee should be punished? Because he should be, Danielson said, taking a sip of some ginger ale. He looked in his element in a cozy green sweater and tan khakis. Paul, you may still be too young to have learned that a person needs to look for compromises. The truth often lay in the gray middle. Lucas wasn't sure he agreed, but he respected Danielson, so he didn't reject it outright, as he might have with someone like Rialto. Instead, he grabbed some shrimp sushi off a platter and said, But Sam, if Weinberg rules to suspend him, the Schmitz and their irrational religion wins. Why are we so afraid to say bullshit when the truth is so obvious? Danielson chuckled. <laughs> the truth is harder to pin down than you think, Paul. For instance, what would you say if Bob Jr. had taken the Advil and had a serious allergic reaction? Would that change your opinion about Chris Lee acting rightly? Well, that's different, Lucas said as he finished chewing his sushi. I mean, that's a health issue. It's real. This is religious hogwash. That's what we're dealing with. The point I'm making, Paul, is that we have the rule that students give their medications to the nurse for a reason. Because if a kid ever does have an allergic reaction in a situation like this, then we've got real trouble. Lucas laughed. To Chris Lee, this is real trouble. I didn't mean it that way. I know you didn't, Sam, he said, grabbing another piece of sushi and tossing it into his mouth. You make a good point. I guess I'm just getting bent out of shape at the way things are going lately. Understood, Paul, Danison said. And I don't want to lessen your passion or concern. With that said, I think we'd better start the meeting. The two men walked into Danielson's large living room, which had a high angled ceiling, a beautiful brick fireplace on one wall, a corner of windows looking out into the forest, and a hardwood floor that gave the room a cabin-like feeling. A large oak bookcase covered the third wall. Lucas noticed several shelves devoted to titles such as Hiking in Mount Rainier National Park and Backpacking One Step at a Time. Several people sat on various couches and chairs, chatting amicably, but stopped to notice as Danielson and Lucas walked in. Rialto smiled at them both from a comfortable beige couch, and Lucas did his best to smile back. Gang, glad to see you're all here, Danielson said, and the few remaining conversations quieted. As you all know, this may be our last meeting with regard to Last Rush, so we've got to really brainstorm tonight and see if maybe we can come up with something that will help that decision turn back to our favor. First, though, I want to introduce two newcomers, Paul and Terry Lucas. Lucas and Terry smiled as the group acknowledged them. Lucas couldn't tell if the group was happy to have them, or if they felt like it was pointless to have two join so late. Better late than never, Danielson said. We can use all the brain power we can get in this. It's going to take some real creative thinking to get this thing reversed from going the way it's going. Okay, he clapped his hands together. Anybody have any bright ideas? Silence. It was almost a sad silence, not the sort of silence that suggests that everyone is bursting with something to say, but no one has the courage to go first. No, this silence conveyed the impression that this group had run out of ideas, or maybe had lost their will to say much of anything at all. Lucas observed this and felt like jumping in with some questions to maybe get things going a bit. How could a group go from being so chatty to so quiet so quickly? What we need, Danielson said is another issue to put on the mind of the hearing examiner. We've already thrown the idea of endangered species at him, and even though we've got scientists who are on the record stating that there are juvenile salmon in Salisbury Creek, he's buying the argument from the developer scientists that there aren't any fish. So we've lost him on that one, and I don't think he'd go for any new argument on that issue. Here Lucas just about spoke up. What about Sylvanus? If ever there was an endangered species, a man who was stuck in the side of a tree was it. He couldn't tell the group, though. For one, he didn't want to reverse on Terry like that in front of everybody. She likely would explode about it. And second, he didn't want his first words to these people to sound so crazy. They'd never take him seriously if he'd said that. So he kept quiet, and a woman with a loose maroon dress and long blonde hair said, I still think the volcano threat is our best avenue of defense. I mean, 
We've got the team of volcanologists on record stating that Last Rush is definitely one of the highly threatened canyons for a massive mudflow should Rainier act up. You mean a lahar, said Rialto proudly. Lahar bizarre, the woman said sharply, and Lucas could tell that she didn't get along with Rialto. It's our best bet. Even the developers might rethink it if they are offered enough proof that building there will only mean their mall will get buried sometime in the future. Yeah, Danison said. Problem is, they aren't going to believe that. They're deep in denial because they so badly want to build this thing. So I think we can forget about that. I still think the best route is the publicly beneficial argument, Rialto said. From the case law I've read about how that phrase has been interpreted elsewhere, a mall has to be shot down three times and accepted only once. The consensus suggests that the phrase meant something less commercial, like a park, not a mall. Well, yes, I suppose we could try to stir the public up by planting some stories in the press so the hearing examiner may feel pressured to go our way on this, Danielson said. It does seem to be our best shot. Terry and Paul, do you have any ideas? Not right now, Lucas said, but I'm going to talk to a friend of mine tomorrow, and I just might. Chapter 16. Half-Truths, Denials, and Warning Signs before he'd even made the comment at the meeting, Lucas knew he was going to have some explaining to do to Terry. They hadn't even reached their car when she asked him, Who is his friend you have to talk to? Larry, Lucas said immediately, getting into the car. He knew she wasn't ready for this, but also figured she didn't know the extent to which he had planned out the following conversation. Larry said something to me about being on a volcano kick. He was going up to Rainier, which I thought was kind of strange since the mountain is sleeping. Anyway, he may be able to help. Uh, I don't know. But Paul, Terry said, you heard what Sam said. The volcano angle is kaput. It's not going to change anyone's mind. That's only the volcano angle that this group has already worked out, Lucas said, as he pulled out into the street. They've never met anybody like Larry. Even you have to admit, the guy has odd powers. Odd powers, Terry said and laughed. Yes, I suppose you could call them that. Larry Sherry, man of odd powers. Lucas laughed, and the subject was dropped. It had gone perfectly. Yes, he was going to talk to Larry about the volcano and its threat to Last Rush Canyon, so he could comfort himself with this partial truth. Of course, he'd meant Sylvanus, and of course he was hoping to play the endangered species angle, not the volcano bit. He'd wanted to give the sad activists something to feel hopeful about, even if it was something as crazy as a man stuck in a tree. Lucas knew that the sheer craziness of it was precisely what could stop the whole thing from going through, and he wanted desperately to be the last second hero to ride the shoulders of victory. Paul, Terry said from out of the silence, what are we going to do if we lose the forest and gain them all? I don't even want to think about it, Terry, Lucas said, and he turned on the radio and lost his thoughts in sports talk radio banter the rest of the way home. The next morning, Lucas was in the hallway at school when Danielson pulled him into his classroom and said, You don't know about Weinberg's involvement, do you? What? You don't. Fine, Danielson said, and he shut the door. It's his family. Brother, actually. He's the minority owner on this outlet mall deal. Something like 21%. And there's a few others around the area that have some, too. Of course, then there's J.R. Schneider out of Houston, who has 48%. Anyway, so you've never heard of Carl Weinberg? Oh, yeah, Lucas said. I do read the paper, Sam. He's the real estate guy. But what's that got to do with Max? Do you have any siblings, Paul? Yes, a brother I hardly ever talk to. Well, not all families are the same, and the Weinbergs are certainly different. You don't hear much about it around school because you know how our principal is about gossip. But the Weinbergs have been around these parts for a long time, and they have not always been the most ethical of families, to put it nicely. What do you mean? Well, said Danison, pushing his glasses back up on his large nose, I guess I can give you a short history lesson. Way back, 1860s or so, Hermann von Weinberg. Von Weinberg? Yeah, they took out the von to Americanize themselves. Very common in those days, Danison said. Anyway... Herman was sheriff here when the Europeans were first settling in the area. Herman earned the scorn of all the local tribes because he was such a brutal bastard. In fact, 
Before he became sheriff, he was just about killed in an Indian raid on a cabin where he was staying. Apparently, he'd murdered an Indian family in cold blood while they were sleeping, and the Indians weren't too happy about that, so they came back for vengeance. Harriman had a gun, and the Indians didn't, so he killed four more of them. Purely in self-defense, of course. Still, the fact that he'd started the whole thing by killing an Indian family was never proved, or at least it was denied, by the whites who liked Airman's vivacious character and decided to make him share for it. Then there was his son, Wilhelm, or Will as he was called later. He was a real smooth talker when he wasn't drunk. He ran the town salon in the 1890s, bought a bunch of land locally, and when the 1920s came around, he was the top dog bootlegger for Pierce County. He was also suspected in some questionable murder cases, but never spent any time in prison. Then again, his daddy was still sheriff at the time, so you connect the dots. This is all fascinating, Sam, Lucas said, looking at the clock and realizing he had only 15 minutes until class. But what does it have to do with Max? Everything, Danielson said. Apparently you didn't grow up in a family with a capital F. No, not really, Lucas said, hesitating to go into his upbringing. Well, I guess you could say the Weinbergs are sort of our Kennedys. They aren't national, but around here they are big enough. And the fact that they stand to gain from this mall means that, A, barring a miracle, it's going to go through, and B, you and I have to be very careful, especially at school. Thanks, Lucas said. I had no clue. But I do think I might have that miracle. I'll let you know tomorrow. At lunch that day, Lucas got to thinking, How much can I trust Danielson? I've worked with Weinberg for four years, and he's always seemed like a good enough guy to me. A bit boring, yes, but not some power-mad member of a Kennedy-esque dynasty. He was gulping down a glass of milk when Wendy sat down next to him. The room was filled with the din of private conversations, and Wendy asked Lucas quietly, Do you know about the teacher of the year award? What? Darn, Wendy said. I don't want to be the one to have to tell you this. Let it out, Wendy. Okay, she said inside. It was rigged. What? How? Well, let's just say that Danielson hasn't exactly been quiet about talking badly about Weinberg, and even if Weinberg can't prove it happened, he hates nothing more than to be talked about badly. Anyway, they were going to give the award to Danielson to show him gratitude for so many great years. Yeah, I thought they were, Lucas said, and I'm still a bit embarrassed it was me. Paul, Wendy said and smiled. No one thinks you didn't deserve it. You did. It's just that your glory got caught up in this little personal spat the two of them are going. Okay, thanks for telling me, Lucas said, though he certainly didn't want to hear such news. Wendy's news had put a hole in Lucas's float, yet it had strengthened his determination to win the battle to save Sylvanus in the forest. He raced home from school that afternoon, anxious to pitch his plan to Sylvanus. When he arrived in the grove, the sun had all but disappeared behind a wall of black clouds, and for the first time that fall, the grove felt chilly, damp, and not very inviting to Lucas. Fall was definitely in full swing, and in western Washington, that meant a sogginess that doesn't go away until late spring, if then. Lucas shivered as he yelled up to his sleeping, indented Sylvanus. Ever gonna wake up, sleepyhead? The knock came to life, and Sylvanus blew on a large centipede that was on his head. Go away, you! The centipede fell to the ground, looked dead for a second, but then scampered off into the woods. Hi, Paul, Sylvanus said. What's going on? Listen, Lucas began. I have to tell you something. This forest is going to be destroyed for... What? How on earth can it be destroyed? They want to put an outlet mall in here. What's an outlet mall? Oh, boy, Lucas thought. It's a place where people buy things. Lots of things. Things they may not need, but feel they do. Why do they want to build them all here? Because, Lucas said, they claim that Lincolnton needs it. Anyway, Sylvanus, it's probably going to happen. Unless... Yes? Unless we can tell the world about you. You, Sylvanus, can save the forest. But you'll have to let me tell them. No, Sylvanus said curtly. Then he was silent. No? Just like that? No discussion? Don't you care about this forest? 
Weren't you telling me about talking with its creatures? What about them? That's not the point. It is. No, Paul, it isn't, Sylvanus said. The point is, the decision is not entirely up to me. It's, well, it's just not. What or who is the decision up to? Who would want the forest to be destroyed? No one, Sylvanus yelled, and the force of his voice surprised and silenced Lucas. He didn't say anything, but finally Sylvanus said, I'm sorry, Paul. I just don't think you thought this all the way through before asking me. I'm sorry, but the answer is no. And before Lucas could even say, think about it, Sylvanus's head morphed into the tree, leaving Lucas muttering, You always get the last word, don't you? Lucas hurried out of the rapidly darkening forest, the air chilling him. When he reached his back porch, darkness soaked up the air, and his porch lamp emanated a misty yellow-orange glow. Lucas shivered as he entered the sanctuary of his house, smiling at Scarlet as she ran up to him and hugged his legs. He ran his fingers through her hair and said, Scarlet, Scarlet, how is my Scarlet the Starlet? He'd called her this ever since a night a few years back when he'd been tucking her in after a long day and had accidentally said, Good night, Starlet, and that had sent her into a giggle fit. When he later told her what a Starlet was, she reacted enthusiastically and the nickname stuck. Daddy, I don't want to go to that daycare anymore, she said. Why not, honey? he asked, suddenly remembering that he had neglected to call the daycare to chew them out about Scarlet's accident at the intersection. Oddly, just as he remembered the neglected call, the phone rang. I don't know, she said. I just don't like it anymore. Well, there's got to be some reason, Lucas said. What is it? Paul, came Terry's voice from the kitchen. The phone is for you. It's Larry. Scarlet took the opportunity to run down the hall, apparently wanting any excuse to avoid going into too much detail about why she hated the daycare. Lucas forgot about it again and picked up the receiver. Larry, my man, what's happening? Terry said you had something to ask me. I do, Lucas said. That's what she said, Larry said. Suddenly, he remembered how he told Terry that he was going to ask Larry about the volcano angle for saving Last Rush Canyon. Fortunately, Terry wasn't in the room with him, so he just had to hope she wasn't within hearing range and that his words wouldn't make her think he'd lied to her. Oh, oh, oh yes, Lucas continued. I haven't really talked to you about Last Rush Cannon, have I? Nopesters, Larry responded. Larry, this is really serious, Lucas said. All right, brother, Larry said. Go ahead. Last Rush Canyon is a pristine old-growth forest with a beautiful little creek at its bottom that sits behind my property, Lucas said. And apparently, some people think that this beautiful piece of untouched land would be better off if it were raised and turned into an outlet mall. Stop there, buddy, Larry said. I have heard about this. Read about it in the Post the other day. Well, don't trust everything they say, Lucas said. I'm involved with some activists, and they were telling me that the Post has written several pieces on the controversy. Usually, it's a shallow assessment of the issues with more attention being paid to the gamesmanship of the lawyers than anything else, and certainly no mention of the inherent value of such a pristine area. In fact, they've written one editorial about how much the community stands to gain economically if they build them all, but nothing, besides a few letters to the editor, has suggested that the land is something beyond mere economic value. Oh, boy, Larry said, exhaling a large breath. I knew I shouldn't have brought up the media with you, my friend. Just as passionate as a Spanish bullfighter you are. Well, Lucas said, I'm a bit despondent, Larry. We've only got a little more than a week before the county's land use office decides whether or not to grant the permit. If they do, we're through. Gotcha, Larry said. Well, what can I do? I'm wondering about the stability of Mount Rainier, Lucas said. You said something the other night about being up here on a project about it, Anne. Yes, yes, Larry said, excited now that it was his turn to talk. I just got back from my first trip up the mountain this afternoon, and there's a lot I'm learning. As you know, Mount Rainier is one of the largest volcanoes in the continental United States, if not the world. And while it erupts every now and then, eruption is not the threat that geologists fear the most for Rainier. Really? Lucas said. But wouldn't an eruption of Rainier be a serious threat to the whole Puget Sound region? Well, yeah, Larry said. But it doesn't erupt all that often, at least not that sort of an eruption. No, 
What worries geologists the most are lahars. There have been about 60 major lahars over the past 10,000 years, and the largest ones occur every 500 years or so. But if Rainier doesn't erupt all that often, Lucas asked, doesn't that mean these lahars aren't that big of a threat? That's what people used to think, Larry said. But recent research shows that lahars are not only triggered by eruptions on a volcano like Rainier. Sometimes they are triggered by parts of the mountain collapsing because it is mechanically weak. And, unfortunately for people in your town and other towns that sit on the western side of Rainier, four or five of the major river valleys where these lahars will come crashing through are on the west side. You guys are right in the line of fire. So why are you working on a story now? Lucas asked. Is there some warning signs that suggest one of these will occur soon? Well, that's just it, Larry said. They don't really give a warning sign, at least not like a volcanic eruption. So I'm working on this story so that people in towns like Lincolnton will understand the risks and become more active in supporting efforts to prepare for them. Wow, Lucas said. I wonder if you'd be willing to give a statement at a public meeting next week. Sure, Larry said. I'd be glad to. I'm going back up to the mountain this weekend. What day is the meeting? Monday night, Lucas said. I'll be there, Larry said. Hey, I gotta go. Got some things to do to get ready to leave in the morning. I'll be back in Monday afternoon, my friend. Don't worry. We're going to help you defeat this thing.